0: You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs.
1: So most welcome to this seminar on a very timely and hot topic, how to understand Sunni-Shia sectarianism uh, with the case of Hezbollah's war in Syria as an example. My name is Peter Hamagren. I'm the head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute here and I have three distinguished scholars who will help us to explore this issue. I will give them a short introduction, but first of all, let's just sort of frame the topic here. We have the devastating war in Syria, which has been going on longer than the Second World War now, and it's in its post-IS, post-Daesh phase, where foreign interests and actors are pitted against each other and where a UN resolution on a humanitarian ceasefire has been violated. So there is no end of the war on the horizon as we see it now. Which sort of reminds many of us of the war in Lebanon, which lasted for 15 years. And actually, in Lebanon, during that war, Hezbollah was born. It was the case, it was born out of an Israeli invasion in 1982 by the help of Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And with this seminar, we wish to explore the issue to what extent is the Sunni Shia sectarianism, with Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran on the other side, actually religiously motivated, or to what extent is it motivated by political means? Is it being used as a tool of political uh, mobilization? To help us to understand this we have Helen Malbig who is a prominent scholar from our Danish sister Institute the Danish Institute for International Studies you're an academic coordinator and you're a very fine expert on many of the issues in the region comprising Syria Iraq Israel Palestine and Hezbollah in Lebanon including many other topics. And you're just now writing on a report for the European Union on Syria. And to your left, we have Lars Erschleff Andersen, who is a uh, uh, senior associate at our institute. Lars also comes from Denmark here, so we have two guests from Copenhagen. And Lars is an expert on jihadism, on China's role in the Middle East, on. political developments in the Persian Gulf and on Lebanon as well, where you've been for a longer time, most welcome. And last but not least, Emin Polyarevich, who's a, a sociologist of religion and associate professor at Uppsala University, who will also help us to zoom out and to see the issue of sectarianism from a different angle. So. Helle most welcome
2: and the floor is yours. Thank you so much uh, Peter and and thank you to the Swedish Institute for inviting me uh, today I'm quite thrilled that I have this uh, opportunity both to discuss with Swedish colleagues about the Middle East but also of course to give you this uh, talk today. I will in part touch upon the situation in Syria and and where I know that especially the Swedish government of course has been in in the forefront uh, trying to help with a a ceasefire in in Syria and a UN resolution, which as you know, probably that that it didn't really come to any fruition. Uh, But what I will talk about in in my presentation and then we can perhaps broaden the uh, discussions afterwards is of course sectarian identity politics with a focus on uh, on Hezbollah. And the first question I would la- like to to ask, somewhat uh, rhetorically, is does sectarian identity politics matter, and how? And in a way, you, you may think that this is a kind of a, a silly question, that of course it matters. But I'll try to walk you, you through a couple of arguments why it at least from my perspective, on one hand, it does matter, but not the way that you would perhaps uh, expect. So I think it's fair to say that in, in the media and in, in policy circles, it's very common to analyze uh, Middle East conflicts, Middle East wars, Middle East rivalries, Middle East alliances, as a result of Sunni-Shia schism in, uh, in Islam. And um, I think you all read like headlines saying that the Sunni Saudi Arabia's pitted against uh, uh, Shia Iran, or you have read headlines saying Shia militias in Iraq are fighting the Sunnis and the like. And all these headlines or this way to describe the Middle East, somehow it, it I guess the intention is that it, it gives you something the adding of the Sunni or the Shia, that you are somehow able to understand more just because these two terms are added. And I think this is because the presumption is that Sunni Shia is what really drives the Middle East, that we can somehow go back to the seventh century where this schism uh, began, and there look for the root causes for the conflicts in the region and that the conflicts in the region in that way are are driven by ancient religious hatred. And I think there are some parallels in these kind of analyses to the ones that we also made in in Europe and in the West in the 1990s with respect to to the Balkans and the Balkan Wars. Similarly, those conflicts or wars were also analyzed as a result of not yeah, in part religious hatred, but especially ethnic hatred. And this was somehow what drove these conflicts. And there are some problems, you can guess that is my argument. There are some problems with this lens, this we call the primordial way of of analyzing the conflicts of the region. Middle East scholars and especially political scientists and international relations theorists are very skeptical of these kind of Uh, of of images of of the region being driven by Sunni Shia and for good reasons, I think. So political scientists uh, as myself will say, well, sectarianism or religion is really only an instrument that is used by political leaders, either state leaders or more local leaders, and they use the sectarianism or the religion to mobilize the people, to mobilize the masses, to discredit their opponents. So, for instance, in, in the Middle East, for long, there's been talk about a Shia crescent, and this was a term that was launched by the uh, Jordanian king, in order to discredit some of his regional rivalries. So that would be Hezbollah and, and Iran in particular. So political scientists would say, this is not really about religion. This is not about sectarianism. They are just using this as an instrument, um, and that we should be careful to take this for granted when we listen to this rhetoric about Sunni Shia. Political scientists will also point out that there's a kind of Orientalism in this, because if we only depict the Middle East as a result of these Sunni, Shia, ancient conflict, religion, then it also becomes a little bit like something we can't really do anything about because they are just driven by their religious hatred, by these ancient conflicts, so there's nothing we can do. We detach ourselves a little, just as very many people did in relation to the Balkans in the 1990s. This was just old ethnic hatred. We couldn't do anything about it. And so political scientists would say instead, so we should just skip those ideas of ancient conflicts and religion, and we should instead look to this as an ideology, just like any other ideology, like uh, socialism or communism and liberalism. And then I would say, yes, they are right to some extent, but they still miss something because the sectarian part does matter. It's it's not just an ideology or an ism like any other isms. I think it's important when political scientists, they stress that sectarianism is something that's created by actors and that it's something they use. But political scientists also need to take seriously, and here I'm, I'm happy that we have a a sociology of, of religion with us today, but I think political scientists need to take seriously the sectarian part. Why is sectarianism right now so effective in the Middle East? Why are political leaders and states, why are they drawing on sectarianism and not on liberalism or democratic ideals or, or socialist ideals or before that like pan-Arab ideas? And I think uh, political scientists, and this is something I try to do in my, my own research, that they should look to the process whereby uh, sectarian identities become conflictual. And we have this fancy word we use a lot in Copenhagen, we call it whereby they are securitized, how they are turned into security problems. And if we, for instance, look to Syria, the Assad regime very effectively used sectarian dynamics and securitized from the very beginning. So the regime tried to install fears with the minority communities, with the the Christians in particular, but also with the Alawites, saying that the uprising was a, a Sunni uprising, that it was the Sunnis that wanted to dominate Syria, and that they would probably take revenge and engage in killings, et cetera, if they came to power, that they would uh, propose a kind of extremist version of Sunni Islam, et cetera. And the regime did this way in the beginning of the conflict, way before we had the Islamic State and extremist groups. And that created a kind of fears uh, and self-fulfilling prophecies with the minority groups. So uh, the Assad regimes in a way created this sense of, of sectarian uh, conflicts among the groups that we need to take seriously. And we also see it in other places, for instance in, in, uh, in Iraq where I was uh, recently, uh, several people showed me, and perhaps I could show you here on the PowerPoint as well. <laughs> Yes, this picture, they, they, several people showed me this picture of uh, Hezbollah flags in, uh, in Mosul, just shortly after Mosul was, uh, was conquered. And Hezbollah is of course a Shia group and Mosul is, is primarily Sunni. So a lot of people, a lot of Iraqis were saying, what is Hezbollah doing here? And why are they raising their flags? So just by the mere fact that they raised their flag created a kind of insecurity. Since then, there's been a lot of debate. Was this really a fake picture or not? And I think that's, again, a token of how these uh, sectarian insecurities can be be used and abused by, uh, by different groups. So, What I've tried to do in in my research is to focus on a particular case study that I will go into a little to to give you a glimpse of how it concretely uh, unfolds this. And I've chosen uh, Hezbollah's uh, mobilization for its war in Syria. And I've done that for a number of reasons, but one of them is that Hezbollah in a sense is a, a bit of a hard case, because usually Hezbollah and Iran both being with a Shia background, has not engaged in a a sectarian uh, discourse or narrative in the Middle East. And for good reasons. Um, So instead they have have stressed that they are, they call it the resistance axis, that they resist of course uh, Israel and also the West uh, imperialism. They have shown solidarity with the uh, with the Pil- Palestinians, etc., and of course been to war with with, uh, with Israel, and Hezbollah was for many years in fact one of the most popular uh, movements in the Arab world. So the leader of Hezbollah, uh, Nasrallah, was in polls he was ranked number one uh, popular leader uh, in the region, and this was of course especially after the war with uh, with Israel in two thousand and six. So usually, uh, Hezbollah has downtoned uh, the Shia element, the religious element, not in Lebanon itself, but more to a a regional Arab uh, audience. And the leaders, Nasrallah, has also very many times stressed that what Hezbollah is seeking is uh, is dialogue between Sunni and Shia. um, And he's been in, in the forefront for that. So in a sense, Hezbollah is then a hard case. And it's interesting because what has happened gradually is that Hezbollah from the beginning of 2012, where it became more and more engaged in in Syria with its own fighters, became more and more sectarian in its own explanation of why it was uh, in Syria. So suddenly, Nasrallah and I've, I've looked both into the speeches of Hezbollah. I've done several interviews with uh, high-ranking Hezbollah members, and then I've also looked into some uh, a lot of music videos from uh, Hezbollah that I'll also talk a little about. But so, but the way Hezbollah legitimised that it was in Syria was suddenly with sectarian references. So in speeches, uh, Nasrallah would talk about how. Uh, Hezbollah members, Shias, in the border region between Syria and Lebanon was being sectarianly uh, cleansed. So a form of ethnic cleansing, but just sectarian cleansing. And that Hezbollah, of course, needed to stop that. There were also references to how Hezbollah uh, had to protect Shia shrines in Syria itself, especially in in Damascus. Um, And then there were, and these are still going on, a lot of references to how Hezbollah needed to uh, protect both itself, but also Lebanon, from what it called Takfiris. And Takfiris is a denomination for Sunni extremists. So Hezbollah has done this, talked in sectarian terms and mobilized sectarianly, but done that uh, in a in a very sort of subtle, cautious way. Because still Hezbollah doesn't want to be depicted as a a sectarian actor. Um, So it would be, so it's still in sort of indirect ways that Hezbollah talks uh, in sectarian terms. And I think this is also uh, symptomatic of political elites all over the Middle East, especially in mixed uh, communities, in Lebanon, in in Iraq, in Syria, that political leaders and also intellectuals will be very careful to talk in overt sectarian terms. It's not considered, um, how should I put it? It's Sectarianism is considered something of the lower classes, not of the political elite. And so, and I think Lars could tell you more about this. But for instance, in in Lebanon, uh, one will not directly ask uh, your your colleague or or if you meet someone, yeah, are you a Sunni or are you Christian? Um, that that would be way too direct. Instead, it will be slowly, slowly. You would ask, so uh, which village do you come from? And you probably know this as well, the uh, which village do you come from, or what is your family name, and thereby get to know their sectarian background. And here, on the regional level, it's a little bit similar with Hezbollah. So they will talk about how they are protecting the Shia's shrines, and they will say about how they are fighting the uh, Takfiris, which is just another word, I would argue, for Sunnis. And why is that just another word for Sunnis? Hezbollah themselves would say, we're not sectarian, we're just talking about the extremist. But if you probe them a little, it turns out that they are in reality conflating a lot of groups. So in one of the interviews I had with a a senior, Hezbollah leader, um, I asked him in Syria, I said, are there no rebels who are not takfiris or who are not terrorists? And so he pondered a little and then he said, no, they are all Takfiris, they are all Wahhabists, they are all Salafists, they are all terrorists. So now I'll try to see if I can, it's not this one. It's in the other direction. Okay. But another way whereby Hezbollah tries to tackle the sectarianism or being sectarian in a subtle way is through what I call music videos. And and Hezbollah itself would not call this music videos, but uh, this is the best term I can come up with because it's it's three, four minutes, um, often sort of Arabic pop music, and then there's lyrics and, and different kind of images uh, very many from from the war in in Syria, showing elite soldiers, and and then some of the religious images that you have here, and then with really good tunes, uh, and these good tunes in a way perhaps makes you overlook um, the lyrics because the lyrics are then very sectarian, and I think that way it's it's of course a way to mobilize fighters from not only Hezbollah and Lebanon, but also uh from Afghanistan, from uh, from Iraq, uh with a Shia background as well. And by using this genre of uh, and unfortunately, I couldn't show you some of the music videos because all the ones I wanted to show you have been removed from uh, YouTube. They have new rules, so um, so you can't see them, unfortunately. So this is just the image. But I think by using this, it's a way for Hezbollah to talk in very sectarian terms. But, but with the audience, we're not really sure with the music videos because is it real or unreal? Is it a documentary film or is it more sort of this music video? And this allows them to be more sectarian in, uh, in their language. And often they also have a lot of references in their movies from some of their ancient myths of the Battle of Kabbalah and with Hussein and Abbas, etc., Let me see, this is my final go at making it with this one. Yes. All right, so here is, uh, you don't need to read it all, but it's just an uh, example of the uh, lyrics. And as you can see, it's quite, it's both quite, uh, with very many religious Shia references, uh, but also direct, very sectarian language. Uh, for instance, in the last part, Al-Nusra, which is, of course, as you know, one of, was one of the main groups in Syria uh, suffered day and night in the battle of Qusay. It was foretold by the Shi'as they shall crumble. Um, and this kind of language you would never see the leader Nasrallah in a political speech speak that way, but they can do it in the uh, in the music video. So, what is my conclusion on all this? I think I think it's fair to say that sectarianism and sectarian identity politics with the underlining of the politics part has become uh, more and more important in the Middle East. And this is in part because of the fierce rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's because we have seen a breakdown of state orders with all the wars going on and states becoming more and more weak, of course especially in Yemen in Iraq and in Syria. Um, that have paved the way for sectarianism, because when the state doesn't function, then people fall back on communal identities. Um, And I think also because we have seen, again, a resurgence of uh, authoritarianism or autocratic regimes uh, that need to legitimize themselves. This goes, for instance, for, I think a lot of the regimes in the Gulf, or perhaps in particular for Saudi Arabia, that they can legitimize themselves and their bold foreign policies in the region by a a sectarian discourse. But I think sectarianism has also risen, for instance, in the case of of Syria and and Hezbollah, uh, because it has allowed uh, Hezbollah and Iran to mobilize in a transnational way. So before you could, for instance, use before, that that's like 30, 40 years ago, you could mobilize on a kind of pan-Arab ideology, uh, and you could do that transnationally. You cannot do that today, but you can do it through sectarianism. You can recruit fighters, also because you pay them, but from uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, and make them go to Syria with a, a Shia logic. And there's some... Uh, some tragic elements in this because I think that sectarian mobilization makes de-escalation, de-confliction a lot harder and conflict resolution much more difficult. And this is because instead of my enemy having a different security or national interest than me, which makes us able to have sort of a, a compromise because we just have different interests Instead, the other or the enemy becomes a threat because of his identity. It's his identity that threatens me and therefore needs to be eradicated in order for me to feel secure. And that kind of logic is much more difficult both to change and also makes, I think, conflicts much more protracted. But to end on a a little positive note, I think of course that sectarian identity politics can be de-securitized and this is done every day in in the region um, and it's for instance done through uh not mu- also music videos in fact uh but also uh political satire and I'll give you an example of this that you may know um uh which I think is, is quite nice. Uh I'm sushi, I'm not Sunish here. And I think this is some of uh some of the the means whereby I mean when you laugh at something, it's also a way to de securitize. You cannot be afraid when you are laughing. So let me end on that note.
1: Thank you so much, Hallet. It's very Nice to end on a positive note sometimes when you speak on the Middle East. Uh, it was a very interesting um, presentation here. Um, let me just ask you one question when you talk about the um, resistance discourse of Hezbollah and Iran, which indeed was useful in, in the times of the last Lebanon war in 2006 when, as you mentioned, Nasrallah was a hero of the Arab streets mm-hmm. and so forth. Now we see in Syria Hezbollah acting on two fronts. One is being the uh, ground troops of the regime in in the siege of Eastern Ghouta, for instance. Mm. On the other hand, we also see them in the south and where Israel is now having direct clashes with Iranian interest and Hezbollah on the ground. And I was just reading in today's Haaretz, the Israeli paper, they're quoting an Israeli major general Yav who is saying that Israel's goal in the next war in, in, in the north of Israel, meaning in the south of Lebanon and south of Syria, will be to reach a decisive victory, including the killing of Hezbollah leader, Hassan Nasrallah. This is what he's saying, end of quote. Uh, and then I wonder, what do you think might happen with this, the way the um, resistance discourse is being read in the... Sunni Arab streets? On the one hand, you have helping of Assad in the, in, in the siege of, of, of the Sunni Arab districts. On the other hand, they might have new clashes with Israel.
2: Mm. Yeah, thank you, very very interesting question. Um, I think uh, the, the, resi- the whole sort of resistance narrative is still there, and, uh, and, and Hezbollah and Iran, they're both still using this, uh, and it, it, of course, still has a, um, how can I put it? It, it resonates uh, with, with very many people in, in the region, and I think, therefore, if, the, if there is a war, again, like an open war, because there's been, as you correctly mentioned, there's actually been uh, uh, over 100 attacks by Israel into Syria, uh, in part, to try to strike it. At at Hezbollah, but I think if there is an open war in Lebanon itself, for instance, uh, then this would be then Hezbollah would be able to activate some of the same sort of uh, popularity it once had. But I think not, not on the same level. Uh, I think. uh, I think Hezbollah and Iran have lost a lot of the credibility they they once had with the Arab populations because the resistance was not only about resistance to to Israel and the West, but it was also a a resistance to uh, the authoritarian regimes against them in the region. And there were a lot of discourse about how they were standing on the side of the people. And this was in part also why a lot of the people... Uh, sided with uh, with Hezbollah and Nasrallah because they were tired of their authoritarian regimes. And Now it turns out that perhaps Hezbollah is just like the the, the old regimes, and I think that, so. That will be difficult uh, um, for them to uh, to change.
1: If we now turn our our uh, outlook to towards Lebanon, which uh, surprisingly to many has not been directly dragged into the war in Syria in spite of being a host country of so many Syrian refugees. And on the contrary, there's a coalition government still functioning in Lebanon, even though the Saudis tried to uh, change this with Hezbollah and uh, Saad al-Hariri, himself a Saudi national in the same government. It's very interesting. Lars, can you explain the case of Lebanon and
3: Hezbollah to us. Yes, uh, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to do this. Um, I, I, I just wanted to, to start uh, adding uh, 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 small observations to uh, following your speech, Helle. And if you travel into the, uh, if you go into the uh, refugee Palestinian refugee camps in, for instance, in Lebanon, where I have been uh, doing some uh, field work. And I have a good uh, friend there. Oh her name is. And she is. Uh, she is Hamas. Uh, but when you are in her uh, small apartment in the refugee camp, she also has pictures of Nasrallah. Uh, and and inside these Palestinian refugee camps, there are no Sunni Shia divide. Uh, and this is uh, uh, just to complicate the uh, the things. Even also, uh, if you uh, remember when uh, Daesh uh, attacked uh, Yamuk uh, outside uh, Damascus, the Palestinian camp there, there was a lot of Palestinian Sunnis fighting together with the so-called Shia uh, uh, Assad government. Uh, and that's because uh, that there are other uh, divisions than, of course, religious, also political and Ethnic and national and and a lot of others, so that complicates uh, these uh, 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 things. Uh, so you will not uh, be able to go into the Palestinian camp in Lebanon, and uh, and and uh, mobilise uh, during these uh, religious lines. I think um, the other uh, comment I would make is. Uh, That there are uh, researchers in Lebanon who today uh, talks with a little bit of of worry about what they call uh, a confessionalization of the society, and and uh, I think uh, Hella is totally uh, uh, right when when you're not asking people, are you Sunni, Shia, Christian, whatever, Maronite, but today it's very obvious that people, in, in in much more than in the crown days of Beirut, you see people, the way they dress, where they live, and so on and so forth. So this, uh, and this is, of course, uh, what uh, worries uh, researchers in uh, Beirut because what, what would that lead to? Would that lead to, uh, uh, you know, uh, a blossom-up of, uh, of some kind of religious, uh, sectarianism. In Lebanon today, we have 18 uh, public recognized confessions. And uh, this is uh, some of our password. Um, And uh, it has, uh, of course, uh, uh, been one of the features of Lebanon and the uh, history of Lebanon that they have to balance uh, these uh, different uh, uh, groups. Um, And on the other side, There has also been an interest from uh, from, uh, great powers uh, like the United States or like Saudi Arabia or like Israel or like Syria to intervene in this patchwork in order to mobilize some group against others in their own interest. Um, and, And Syria, for instance, have been very active in trying to Uh, mobilize some uh, groups in order to uh, to uh, be able to fulfill their own uh, serious own uh, uh, interest in Lebanon. And we saw another example in November when uh, the uh, Prime Minister of uh, Lebanon, Saad al-Hariri, he was uh, invited to go to Riyadh and uh, he thought he was going there. He's a Saudi citizen, as Bede said, and uh, 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 and he thought he was going to have a, a fun time with the Crown prince in in Saudi Arabia going hunting or whatever, but he was placed in detention and he was forced to read a text written by Saudis where he resigned as prime minister uh, and nobody actually uh, could 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 find out what was here going on. Uh, in this statement, uh, he, he said that his life was threatened. It was not said directly, but it was, from the context, clear that it was father who should be uh, looking uh, to kill him. Uh, this caused an enormous drama, uh, not only in Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, in the region, but also internationally. and. Uh, uh, I think uh, the, the, the conclusion of this event is an enormous miscalculation by the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, because he thought he could, uh, sort of say, uh, mobilize a sectarian internal conflict in Lebanon, but he counted wrong. What happened in Lebanon was that, uh, that all groups in Lebanon, they uh, went uh, in support. For Hariri, uh, even uh, Hezbollah, uh, which is always uh, portrayed as the counterpart or the uh, enemy of future movement and Saad al Hariri, they paid for um, uh, um, making a lot of uh, posters in the streets of Saad al Hariri. Come home, uh, and it was Hezbollah uh, who paid for these. Uh, for this uh, campaign. So it has the exact opposite result than what uh, the Crown Prince and he expected. Namely, that they went together, and, 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 and it, it caused a, a stronger uh, unification political behind future movement and uh, Hariri. Uh, and this, uh, this is, uh, I think, a very uh, uh, good example of what uh, I call uh, a national security consensus in the Lebanese states. And this is, uh, and I will uh, elaborate a little bit on that, but this is the main reason, uh, as I see it, that Lebanon today is uh, not uh, falling apart. Well, look at it. Lebanon is 10,000 square kilometers. It's a tiny state. It has. Uh, uh, been uh, the host, uh, uh, it, it's a polite way of, uh, of, of of saying this, but they have uh, 12 uh, Palestinian refugee camps around, I don't know, 250, 300 Palestinian refugees, Palestinian living in the camps, in uh, a very not nice apartheid system, so to say. They have received a lot of refugees from Syria, they have uh, uh, been seeing that uh, different uh, takfiri groups, jihadist groups, have been trying to mobilize against Hezbollah, and we have seen Hezbollah being fighting in uh, uh, in Syria. And uh, if you travel down south in Lebanon, you will see uh, them celebrating all their victories and uh, mourning all their uh, martyrs. Uh, who lost lives in Syria. So it's totally in the open, still. And, and for years, they did not have a president because they couldn't agree about who uh, to fill out this position. They have postponed the election for the parliament. But it stick together. It, 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 I mean, it's, uh, it's still working. Uh, uh, and it's not uh, uh, falling apart. How is that? I think, uh, uh, of course, uh, many would explain this uh, with the bad experience of the civil war. Not a civil war again. Uh, See, uh, I think many people uh, feel in Lebanon. No, this was uh, 15 years of uh, of uh, uh, bad, bad, bad things going on. We will not going back to that again. But this is not the only uh, reason. I think. I think. Uh, After the uh, assassination of uh, Rafiq al-Hariri, the uh, uh, prime minister and the uh, big man of Lebanon for many years in 2005, we immediately saw uh, two things. We saw that the Sunnis in uh, uh, Lebanon, they said, okay, this is our moment. Now we will line up behind the son of Rafiq hariri namely Saad, and we will now get the control, and we will try to outmaneuver Hezbollah. And on the other side, we saw, of course, Hezbollah mobilizing, getting together with the Christian Maronites and the other big Shia group. And and so, what was a success story for many, namely that Syria was forced to withdraw its troops in 2005, and uh, uh, now uh, it could uh, could develop uh, more independently in uh, Lebanon, apparently became uh, a new driver for internal, uh, what you could call sectarianism. And actually, in the years after 2005, there was a lot of problems, conflicts, assassinations, on both sides. And it came to an open conflict in 2008, where uh, 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 the Sunni government tried to, you know, really squeeze Hezbollah, uh, and Hezbollah f- uh, uh, hit back by putting uh, Hariri in a house arrest and uh, almost uh, occupied the downtown center of, uh, of Beirut. And then at that point, I think, a security consensus developed where they, uh, they concluded that there are no groups that are strong enough to take whole Lebanon and be in control. So instead they have uh, developed this uh, power-sharing elite structure. It is actually in the Constitution uh, that uh, the uh, Sunni should have this representation, the Christian, this, and this here, and that the president should be uh, Christian, that the prime minister should be the Sunni, and the uh, speaker of parliament uh, should be Shia. And, and, and a lot of this uh, uh, in what's called consortium, consortium uh, democracy structure. But I think they have developed it even more, not, uh, not to the good of the Lebanese people, but to the good of the elite. In a power sharing, and that is every time there is a threat against this power sharing elite, they stick together and they uh, and they uh, they uh, contain uh, the threat and that is if the threat is coming from outside like we saw in November with Saudi Arabia, or it 's coming with migration or it is uh, 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 the youth uh, movement. Uh, that was mobilized in 2015 during an enormous garbage crisis, and it, it went enormously popular, but, and, and, and it had the support from all over Lebanon. Then again, we saw the elite sticking together, Hezbollah on one side, the Jews, the Maronite, Christian, the Sunni, getting together and trying to squeeze this youth moment. Those uh, youth mo- uh, movement and they succeeded, and at the municipal munici- munici- the, the, uh-huh. munici- municipality election in uh, Lebanon in the spring of 2016, uh, where uh, a new list came up, Beirut, my came up. Beirut, my city uh, is the name of this movement. Uh, it 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 threatened uh, the majority uh, of the uh, in Beirut, again we saw how the elite from all sides of the uh, 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 important factions they got together and fig- and, and and got squeezed this uh, new uh, moment, uh, this movement. I think they will uh, try to play a role when we will have the next election, if we will have them someday. But but I think this is the political system. Uh, in Lebanon, and uh, Hezbollah plays, of course, an enormous important role in that system, as well as the Maronite Christian and the uh, future movement. And on a daily basis, they are agreeing. If you read the papers in Lebanon, uh, it's the same story. Now they are agreeing on this and on that and on the third thing, and they can never... uh, uh, get a reform through in the, in the political system. So everything is uh, you know just going the way it has to go. But when it's threatened, and therefore I call it a security consensus, they stick together. Uh, this is a good uh, 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 system in the way of securing uh, the Lebanese state together. But it's a bad system in order to uh, uh, see the uh, necessary reforms, and the society coming through. But this is, I think, the explanation for uh, that uh, the crown prince in Riyadh, he, he had totally miscalculated. Uh, and uh, now, today, uh, Hariri, he is again in Riyadh. And, uh, and in Lebanon, they're thinking, oh, what going to happen this time? But uh, probably uh, the crown prince, he learned a lesson in November, I think. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Lars. Uh, a question then about actually about Hariri's um, visit just now to uh, Riyadh. I suppose it has to do with the upcoming elections in Lebanon They were, are supposed to be held in May. Do you see any chances of the, these other forces like Beirut, Medina, and other uh, forces outside of the political elite being able to rock the boat somewhat in the elections?
3: Uh, let me let me first be personal and and say I hope, uh, but then uh, uh, I've been uh, talking uh, with the leaders uh, from Birobidzhanity, and they are keen to try to uh, you know make a, a role for themselves in this uh, election, and uh, I don't know if they will be able to gather the same popularity as they did during the uh, municipality election in May. In Beirut in May 2016, but they will try, and they have a, they have a good case, and 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 the good case is that on one side they are uh, they are explicit non sectarian <laughs> in all ways. On the other side, they have uh, coming up with solutions to some of the main problems, that is in environment, uh, in garbage <laughs> management. In all these kind of uh, things that are important for ordinary people uh, on the ground. So I think they will play a role.
1: Another follow up question, maybe to both of you, but primarily to Helle. Uh, the European Union uh, has some. Sub- rather um, ambiguous policy towards Hezbollah, where it's saying um, that um, it, it considers Hezbollah's military wing a terrorist organization, but it has a linkage to its political wing. And others in the region say that, well, Hezbollah is not really a movement where you can differentiate between the military and the political wing. What's your observation?
2: Well, yes, I, I think it's a kind of a, a political separation, uh, which is, uh, which is a, a, a sensible separation. It's, it's, I mean, it. You cannot make the separation, but it's good in terms of, of diplomacy and making things work, because it would be frankly silly if the European. Union and also other European governments couldn't engage with Hezbollah because Hezbollah is part of government. It's 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 a big big part of political life in in Lebanon. So so it's uh, uh, but then we know with with the U.S. and Israel especially that are are keen to have the uh, the, the sort of more terrorist angle. So I think it's it's uh, and perhaps you could compare it a bit to to the way that the U.S. and Europe are also distinguishing between uh, the Kurdish YPJ and, and the uh, uh, Kurdish in, in Turkey PKK. I think uh, that's also a kind of a, a fine-tuning, which perhaps doesn't match as reality, but makes uh, politics a little easier.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, is, uh, it is a, uh, a way to... Uh, make up for a stupid decision that was uh, to put uh, Hezbollah on this stupid terrorist list. Uh, And and because if you are going to deal with the political situation in Lebanon, that be in development affairs, that means in schooling, that means in health everywhere, cannot avoid to have also a relations to Hezbollah. And then putting it on a list, banning states to have a relation is simply a functional bad. So therefore, I agree with Helle that in order to, I mean, still have the possibility to uh, proceed further uh, with different projects in Lebanon, you needed to make this divide, even everybody knows That is only words.
1: (laughs) I think some European politicians would argue that they had to do this because they claimed that there was evidence that Hezbollah was behind an attack against civilians in Bulgaria.
3: Yeah, that was an old story that was uh, taking up. I mean, uh, we also saw in Denmark uh, politicians arguing with all the uh, suicide missions that Hezbollah was uh, conducting but they didn't uh, I mean since 1999 uh, they have done none of these things I mean I am not you know I'm not uh, a fan of Hezbollah I think they are doing a lot of uh, bad things that's that's not the question the question is how to do politics in Lebanon
1: mm. Thank you and let's now z- we will give the floor to- for questions later during this session of course but before that, it's time for Emin to help us to zoom out in the region, and also a bit time-wise. It's, to understand what's happening now, you always have to go back in history, and, and it's always difficult to know how far back you
4: should go. But you make a choice here. Thank you. I need to stand here because the, the microphone is too short, and my legs are too long. Uh, thank you so much, Halle and Lash. I think you, you, uh, you really highlighted some of the issues that I really wanted to bring out. And, and there is something, I mean, if I put my, my historian hat on, there is something about the logic of the state and how state functions. I mean, both Lebanon and Syria are product of history, right? And the product of history then is something that that has also given rise to uh, identity politics in this particular way. There is no nation state in the world which is free from that, of course. Uh, I suggest uh, to you all to look at sectarianism as a process uh, similar to um, ethnic uh, divisions or even nationalism. I think there are parallels. And I think you also brought that forward Implicitly, at least, that, that they, especially uh, um, uh, Hella was—I'm uh, sorry, uh, uh, Helle was saying that, that there is this um, sectarian identity politic, which has caused, as you called, uh, sectarian cleansing, and in, in, in other words, is that ethnic cleansing. But there is this kind of a parallel, and I think it's helpful for us to look at it that way in order to understand it better. So, logic of the nation-state. Which is created in the Middle East uh, by the end of the uh, uh, 19th century, beginning of 20th century, and especially after the Second World War, is is a product really of colonial presence in the Middle East and North Africa, right? I mean, Lebanon is a direct product of French uh, colonial policy in the region. And why? And the question is then, why was Lebanon created in the way it is? Because of the The fear of the French that the Christian minority in the Middle East would be swallowed, would be repressed, would be, you know, uh, marginalized and so on and so forth. That plays an immense role in how sectarianism is dealt with and how sectarianism produces tensions in Lebanon. Similarly in Syria. The French put in place essentially the Alawite elite through the, the education, through military Uh, privileges and so on and so forth. So then you had a a Alawite, which is a tiny minority group in in Syria to be a political elite eventually, leading the country, not really ruling it uh, in a sectarian way, but then you, you would have the majority Sunnis in Syria being politically at least marginalized, right? And that would have consequences that we see today, for instance, right? That's one thing. The other thing I think we should keep in mind is the catalysts which have uh, uh, caused, which have um, mm, brought forward sectarian politics in the Middle East in recent uh, decades. And the first catalyst is essentially the occupation of Iraq, right, 2003. That unleashed the, the tensions that were already present there, but they were not dominating. I mean, sectarianism and sectarian divisions in Iraq existed even before, right? But after 2003, and essentially after 2006, when this kind of, the whole hell broke loose, was uh, was something which uh, uh, we are seeing fruits of today, or rotten fruits we see today, right? The other catalyst is the Arab Spring, of course. The Arab Spring, I mean, how did the Arab Spring started in Syria? It was the public uprising, it was not a sectarian uprising by any standards, right? You, uh, of course, you, uh, by nature of the how state is constructed, you had minor- majority Sunnis on the streets, but you also had Druze, you also had some Alawites, you also had other uh, uh, ethnic groups such as Kurds and so on and so forth uh, protesting against what they saw a repressive regime. So what does the regime do when this happens? Well, they activate the sectarian narrative. What do they say? Well, we see the extremists, the terrorists, really trying to overthrow the state. That was the narrative which was brought forward. By the circle of vi- cycle of violence, which then in, in, ensued after that, you will see the extremism rising because the political spectrum or political opening or political narrative, which was quite wide in the beginning, narrows very, very much because you have a war situation and who is the most effective warrior? Well, the most zealous warrior, ideologically, religiously, and so on and so forth. That's why you would see then narrowing of the political spectrum in opposition, mainly the, uh, the um, let's call it the religious opposition or the political opposition, which was not sectarian. They leave simply the country or they're killed or they're imprisoned. And who is left? Well, the more extreme forces. And then you see the more kind of evolution of, uh, of, of sectarian hatred. Now. There are several mechanisms that I've outlined in my presentation briefly, so you can, you can just think about it. It's based on research, not my own only, but on general research on sectarianism. It says here, uh, in other words, sectarian communalism or collectivism, much like ethnic national, nationalist hatred and divisions, generate politics of contention, politics of violence, let's call it that way, that mobilize people example of music videos, of these iconography where you present certain picture, is what is is that, what does that do to people? For instance, similarly as we have a, a political party in this country which uses visual cues in order to generate emotions against certain people in the country or certain group of people in the country, saying, look, we are Here, we are the ones who are resisting the oppression. So this resistance narrative among the Shiite groups in the Middle East is really something that's connected to religion, really. Because Shiites have always been a minority, political and also physical minority in the Middle East. And that's why you have the resistance narrative, which is always part of of existing in a Sunni majority region. I mean, uh, Shiites, of course, are a majority in Iran, but the resistance narrative is very much alive there, even though they have all the power in the country, for instance, or Iraq. So these mechanisms that move people to act can be broken down in, some mecha- in several mechanisms. And I just outlined four, there are many more. We have a, a failure of a nation state to develop. To develop what? Effective and inclusive enough institutions to reduce tensions between various social religious, economic and political groups. So failure of state institutions to be inclusive. That means failure of nation states in the Middle East to develop a proper uh, idea and a proper mechanism of citizenship, okay? There are very strange ideas of citizenship existing in the Middle East. I would not go into that, but keep that in mind. The other one, other mechanism is the construction of social structure that activates sectarian thinking by so-called identity entrepreneurs. Like Hassan Nasrallah, because this is an uh, active example, so let's call it that way. But very cleverly though, not calling directly for the, uh, uh, for the um, increased tensions between Sunnis and Shiites. Why? Because you don't want to aggravate the majority and massive amount of Sunnis in the Middle East you still be, have to be clever about it. And they have been, Hezbollah has been especially clever about it. And also think about Hamas, which is not the sectarian group calling for sectarian violence. Why? Because they see the, 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 the tension with uh, Iran and the, and the Shiite minorities across Middle East is something which is detrimental to Palestinian cause. It's something that it hurts. So Hamas, in this sense, is nationalist movement. Not so much Islamist in this context, I mean. Of course, they are both. But depending in which situation you find yourself in, you will change your identities. That's why we need to think about that all of us, regardless where we are from, we have multiple identities. Religious and ethnic and, and state and national and whatnot. The third mechanism is the sectarian ethnic violence that already erupts. And I think Heeller was uh, uh, talking about this, only aggravates further tensions and deepens violence and divisions. So if you have activated this ethne, uh, I'm sorry, sectarian violence, that would only entrench the, the hatred further, and it's very hard to pull out from that. And that's why a mechanism of peace, so, uh, conflict solution are very hard, in this case, when you already have this violence going on. Okay? And the fourth, which I think it's relevant, sectarianism as a model by which to organize, discuss, and understand a society becomes institutionalized, like in the case of Lebanon. The, sec- the, the whole idea of Lebanon after the civil war and how to solve the sectarian tension is to institutionalize sectarianism. So you don't vote according to the ideology or some conviction, you vote according to your group belonging. And that's a lost case. <laughs> if we're talking about the modern nation-state, it's a lost case, so how do you do that? How do you solve it? I don't know, but it's something to think about. So there is no trans-historical, trans analytically speaking, category of sectarianism. It does not exist, really. You cannot talk about sectarianism that existed in medieval times, in Middle East, It looks the same today. It's not. We are are existing and the the sectarian tensions exist in totally different context than it was 100 years ago or not to talk about one millennia ago. Totally different. In that sense, we should think about sectarianism, as I said initially, as a kind of an ethnic uh, cleansing. You mentioned that when you meet a person in Lebanon or in Syria or in any other Multinational, multi ethnic country, you don't really go and ask directly, what are you? If you are not totally naive. <laughs> but what do you do? There are visual cues, there are narrative cues by which you can identify a person. How do people in a conflict area such as East Africa, in Somalia, which is not affected by sectarian warf- warfare, but clan warfare, how do they identify each other? Or in Central, African Republic, as we see today, is, is, is evolving into, into almost a genocide. How do you identify the enemy, the other? But there are so many different cues. Names is one. Or oh, in the Balkans, which is an excellent example, how do you do it? They have religious differences and ethnic differences mixed together. There are visual cues in how they do you do. That's why I have to be attuned to certain things, both names and looks and dress, as Larsh was saying initially. So, Sectarianism is therefore socially constructed and historically contingent. Everybody get that? It's constructed because it's something which is imagined in our heads. Being a Swede, today in this country, we discuss this all the time. What does it mean to be a Swedish person? Right? Just that question also should connect us to other areas. Because complexity of thinking, who is a Swede, who is a Dane, is also connected to how people reason in the Middle East. What does, what does it make me, me, or belonging to a certain group? Is it my color, or my skin, or hair, or my name, or my parents' background? What is it? That, those are c- quite important questions, I think. That's why I said it's constructed, socially constructed, to be a Swede, How many generations do we have to live in Sweden to become Swedish? Three or four. Now we're talking about the fourth and fifth generation Swedes. It doesn't make sense really if you if you break it down. That's why I said it's socially constructed and historically contingent, meaning that every historical moment has some specific mechanism and functions which produces certain uh, uh, identities. Why didn't we see, I'm sorry, why didn't we see sectarian conflict in Middle East in 1800s, I'm sorry, 1860s until the First World War. Why? This was, it was ripe for, 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 for a sectarian conflict, ripe. The, middle, uh, the Ottoman Empire was crumbling. We saw some, that was the Armenian Genocide and some other, uh, uh, but this happened north from the Middle East. What happened in the south? Meaning the, the, what we call today Sham, There was no such thing. And you had, I would say, more ethnic groups than today (laughs) and and, and religious minorities. That's why I said we have to be very careful by using sectarianism to explain conflicts that happen today in the Middle East. It is not a cause. It's a symptom of of something larger, something more than that. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Emi, for sharing and and explaining the complexities of these issues. And and a quick follow-up question, it might be a long answer now, is we sort of live in in times overall of identity politics. It's not only in the Middle East. It's general, as you mentioned, in Scandinavia also.
4: What's your reflection about this? (laughs) I didn't hear the question. (laughs) Well, yeah. Look, it's a it's a it's a it's a trend, essentially. It's a global trend, I think, by people retreating uh, because it's a crisis of identity globally, not only not only uh, Middle East or, or, or Africa, but more or less the uh, U.S. And and and, uh, and 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 Europe. I'm thinking sometimes I compare sectarianism to racism, a- and I and I look at the U.S. and say, look. How do people divide each other in groups and cultures in the U.S.? Oftentimes, it's according to race. Here, religion plays a similar role. It doesn't matter, really, if you scream Ali or if you scream Omar uh, in the Middle East. Or, or you can see them. Look, one, one thing, which is quite a factor. Look at the family, uh, royal, Saudi royal family. Look at their names. They are no Husseins there are no Hassans, there are no Ali's. Why? Right? So you, you would have this kind of racism going on, uh, which is sectarianism, basically. That, that also happens in our, in our midst. You, and I think it has to do, this is an is a, is a empirical question. It's kind of a hypothesis. I, I think it has to do with the information technology and how it's used today. You have maybe a person in a mosque somewhere Rinkibi, maybe, uh, saying, Look, all these Shiites are Rafida, uh, they are rejectors, they are this kind of a derogatory term for Shiites. And this is posted on YouTube. And you say, Look at these Sunnis, what they do. So they're, they're Nusaydis, they're Nasibis, they are those who curse Ali and his family and Prophet's family, they, they're the haters. So you, you see just two regular people, which have maybe followers of a, or two dozen people, they reach millions. And this way, it's kind of excerpt, you know, and these videos are there for years and years, maybe decades to come. And you only have to click and you find your, like these kind of algorithms, right, in in Facebook. They just feed you information that they think you are prone to accepting. And that kind of raises this, this tension with one of the mechanisms that raises this tension. There are much more, of course.
2: Ellie, you want to follow up? Yeah, thanks. That that really inspired me. I mean, uh, also this with uh, social media because I definitely think there's something there, uh, and I think perhaps it's also related to that sectarian taboo that we both talked about. This that you don't, you are not very direct in your sectarianism, but social media and the kind of circulation on social media have opened up for a lot of new actors, not only the political leaders and the elite and intellectuals, but all kind of shakes suddenly being on social media and then being able to use that kind of, of fierce language, which we, of course, also see in our own world, with the, 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 the kind of language it has, that's allowed on social media is very different from when we have face-to-face uh, interactions. But just now, since you are a, a sociologist of, of religion, i cannot help I really wanted to to have your thoughts on this you You say that ethnic communities and securitizing ethnic communities is the same as um, sectarian communities in a sense similar, it, uh, similar. <laughs> and I'm I'm just wondering aren't there some differences i know what is the religious element or the difference to, to the ethnic element? I'm thinking for instance that perhaps it's easier to mobilize along sectarian religious lines than ethnic. Uh, for instance in terms of what you sacrifice yourself for even though it's uh, um, you know we, we know the sacrifice for the nation is, is a big thing in, in an ethnic community but here when you do it in religious terms, you also get an afterlife, for instance. So, so I'm just curious for you to spell out some of the difference, because they are there, I think, even though I'm not a sociologist of religion, but...
4: <laughs> no, you, you're completely right. If you, if you look at it from the... What is religion then? I define religion as a pool of values and pool of, 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 of ethical and moral uh, guidelines. Uh, based on a religious scripture oftentimes, it doesn't have to be, but oftentimes it is, especially if we t- talk about Abrahamic religions. So you will, the, the 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 element of salvation, element of as they say in Swedish, is always there. But again, what do you do with it? If it's there and you live your life according to some religious uh, 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 rules and, and, and system, then you are hoping for salvation. And what do you do when you, uh, fight for ethnicity or, or nation. You sacralize it oftentimes. It doesn't have to be a book, it doesn't have to be God, but nation in this sense gives a content for the state and replaces God essentially. That's why I teach to my students. Very crude, very kind of unsophisticated. But there is this kind of an element of sacralization of, of, of nationhood. Some political parties are very good at that. They, they use it very, very nicely and very uh, efficiently. Others are not interested in that so much. But you know, but they, it depends in, which case, in what case we're talking about. To speak to a Kurdish nationalist today, and, and this, is, this is a fact, many of, of Kurdish uh, uh, minority um, people in Sweden had traveled every week or every month to fight Daesh in, in Erbil, for instance, from Sweden. Nobody asked them anything when they come back. Who do you fight? How many people did you kill? You know, what, what happened? You know, there's no debriefing. But if you do it on religious ground, you are immediately seen as a threat. Because in our consciousness, in our Scandinavia, where we are from, being a religious fanatic and being a nationalist fanatic, it's qualitatively different. And I think if you dig deep enough into it, they're not so much very different. I
1: think by this ending, I think I have a final question for the panel, but I leave it to the end. And I think it's time to, to give the chance to, to the audience to ask some questions, especially on this ending note, maybe. Uh, I, I know we have, uh, we will take three questions at a time. Uh, I think Daniel from uh, the Department of Peace and Conflict at Uppsala University. I know you, you highlighted you wanted to ask something.
0: Thank you for the introduction. Thank you all for extremely interesting talks. This is very inspiring to listen to. And, mean you alluded to the historical dimension. So I was just thinking, like, what can we learn from the many conflicts within Christianity that has been played out over history? What can we learn from those experiences and how to deal with these types of conflicts? Thank so you. anyone who's feels up for that one, just go ahead.
1: And who's next? I've, yes?
0: Uh, hello, my name is Hormus Kapadia. Uh, I'm a Zoroastrian, so I'm neutral here. Okay. <laughs> we were driven out of Persia, 960 lived in India. But my question is, uh, amen to you, uh, isn't there something connected to the, um, in the Middle East, the colonial powers were the people who ruled for a long time, and when the colonial powers left, of course it was Nasser, it was Ibn Saud, uh, it was... Uh, Reza Pelvi in Iran, is that something to do with the rise of nationalism and religious um, uh, pol- political uh, mixture here?
1: And do we have a third question somewhere? Okay, then we, you can you think about your questions, and we can go to these answers. Who
4: wants okay, to start? J- j- just briefly, the, the Christian experience is just the the whole new venue, that it's totally out of my league. Uh, I I, I can just briefly say that the the, the Christian sectarian uh, wars uh, resulted, essentially, in formation of a nation state. When when the forces in Europe saw Protestants and and Catholics, when they saw they couldn't defeat each other, they simply gave up and said, we need to find some solution here. (laughs) I mean, crudely put. But that's what essentially happened, the Hundred Year War, and so on and so forth. So, and they said, look, we need to look beyond the religion. And that's why nationalism as, an, as a master narrative by which to organize a political structure is something which emerged as a result of that. Just, just my five you know, seconds answer. I don't know. If, if, just take that question, and we take this. Yeah. Did you want to ask?
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you for your question about uh, Christian religion. Uh, and conflicts. Uh, I have been uh, using uh, some time here recently and studying the famous uh, 30-year war, and, uh, and this uh, uh, all this uh, sectarianism that uh, developed during this uh, very, very long that was uh, much longer than 30 years. Um, And they, uh, of course, uh, succeeded in in ending that uh, with the uh, Westphalia Peace Treaty um, and then developed uh, the uh, modern uh, bureaucratic uh, state. But but there is a very big difference when we are looking into this, and that is that uh, Europe was alone at that time, and the Middle East is not alone. Uh, in, in that way, that Europe uh, was, uh, you know, fighting uh, each other uh, inside, uh, without uh, a great or a superpower uh, intervention. Today, uh, Middle East is what some of my good colleagues in England call the most great power penetrated region in the world, and that makes it uh, difficult. Uh, also, or complicates it at least, to make the direct parallel between uh, the uh, early period of uh, Europe, uh, modern Europe, and what's going on in the Middle East today. So, do you want, do you want to answer? Uh,
1: well,
2: just a very small adding. In to you perhaps, I mean, uh, in terms of the nation state experience in, in Europe uh, with being a response to re- the religious wars in, in Europe. I think what some of the early nationalists in, in the Middle East and the Arab world were, they were perhaps trying to repeat that European experience. So in, in the 30s and 40s, 50s, 60s, with, they were promoting this nation state idea and importing it uh, this idea, and what they did in the process was perhaps um being too eager to to uh, to erase some of the other identities uh, and um what I know for instance, there's a very good study of uh Iraq by Fana haddad, and what he shows is that this arab socialist nation state uh, um to a large extent, was uh, a Sunni Sunni invention in Iraq. And so the Sunnis would, of course, say, we didn't have any sectarianism in Iraq before the US invasion in 2003, just as, as you alluded to as well. I mean, that was something that was started by by the war. And that's perhaps, in a sense, right, but then not. Because the Shias, uh, for a long while, felt that the Sunnis had captured the state, and captured the idea of the nation state. Um, and I think that's that's worth, again, uh, uh, pondering a little uh, over.
1: So who's next? Please, evin and we take two questions here, and then I think we have to f- finish. Sorry, because time will then be running out.
5: Dawn? Uh, my name is Nivina abu and I work for the Swedish Migration Agency. Um, actually, I think this question I'll try to direct it to all three of you, because these three countries that, we are, that are neighboring to each other, which is Lebanon, Syria, and, and Iraq, this is actually what makes the Middle East so unique, because it's the only three countries, basically, that has this multi-ethnic religious composition. And my question now is, um, how is this uh, sectarian uh, component affect the ethnic groups that are there? Um, because we're, here we're just talking Sunnah and Shia, but you have Christians. I, I follow Iraq, which is a country where they are in majority, um, but this is also having a completely big effect on these small ethnic groups: I'm, Kurds, Christians, Yazidis etc. Thank
6: you. Hello, and my name is Sean Williams from a company called Mundus International. Uh, my question, uh, perhaps most to Eamon, but uh, certainly interested to hear Hella and uh, Lasha's uh, comments as well, is you've spoken a lot about identity. Um, what is maybe implicit but is not that clear to me in your in the way you communicate is around values and to what extent do different values play out uh, and, and have a factor on identity, or or are the fundamental values uh, of the different groups actually quite similar, and therefore they are creating an identity that is, that is not about uh, you know, I'm trying to, without going into a whole lot of detail around what sort of values one one might have, but maybe I'll just leave it general. You know, could you comment upon? what the value systems are of different groups and to what extent that drives the turmoil um, versus politics.
1: Thank you, two big topics, but try to be brief because we need to finish by a seven five minutes from now.
4: Okay, just-, just, just I, I, Yeah. Ah, oh, sorry. I think you can start. Okay, just very briefly, the, the, look at this, again, a historical example. From 1860s onwards until First World War, you had something in the Middle East called Nahda, the Renaissance, uh, cultural Renaissance, uh, uh, ethnic and national and state Renaissance. Who was the driving force in this kind of a development of pan-Arabism, meaning the all Arabs being belonging to one nation? Essentially, they were Christian Arabs. They were they were the ones. They were minorities. They were they were Jew Jewish, uh, Ar- Jew, Jewish Arabs, basically. Right. <laughs> it's a. It's a it, our contemporary times are really mixing this up. Look, Jewish Arabs were also very active in Iraq, for instance, in 1940s and 50s, as, as through art. So today, when we speak about Iraqi music, it's essentially Jewish Iraqis who invented the music, of, which is Iraqi national music. They were expelled later on in 1950s because of the formation of state of Israel, and so on and so forth. So you would you see the minorities had played a role in, in essentially to carve out a a common identity, national identity, citizenship, in which they could be included. Values in this sense played, um, they were general conservative values, religious values. They, they were shared. I mean, everybody was, you know, uh, they were very conservative in, t- in terms of families. So so women had their role, regardless of religion or ethnic group. Women had you know, traditional roles, men had traditional roles. Honor was very important and still is in some cases. So in terms of values, I don't see that big of a a difference. Essentially, here is talking about my identity, as Hela was saying before. I feel threatened by you because you have a different name, a different religion, different ethnic group. That's why we will, you know, not be friends. And when you have violence involved in this, this entrenches this division.
2: So just uh, quickly on on the Iraq question, which I think is is very interesting, but I also think that the different groups and minorities in in Iraq have have tackled this uh, in different ways. So there's no doubt that the Christians are very pressured uh, have been for some time now in in Iraq, but also that they are seeking uh, new alliances, perhaps in a way that we also see it from from uh, from Lebanon where Christians and Shias, for instance, are uh, uh, much easier, can uh, collaborate. Um, and I have like an anecdote of, of this. Uh, when I was in Northern Iraq where, um, where one Christian male, he had like an, an emblem of uh, Hussein uh, from that militia, and, and uh, so I asked him why he did that. He said, well, this just for saying that, that's fine. I like this malicious. So I think there, there's not the same kind of, of frictions uh, and there's kind of alliances that we see also in, in Syria and in Lebanon where Christians and Shias uh, are easier co- to uh, collaborate. And then there's, of course, the Kurds, which is a completely different question. Uh, that feels pressured as well. And one of their main arguments is of course that all this sectarianism and all this state failure of Iraq is something we don't want to be a part of.
1: So, I mean, you've already touched upon so many different topics. It's been very thought-provoking, but just to wrap up here, I have a final question and try to find a brief answer. What is the remedy to sectarianism (laughs) who wants to start Lars
3: a functional state system
1: Uh that's a short answer
2: and that's that's such a good answer, uh, Lars. I wish I'd taken that one. And and you said before. I mean, I don't know, but so I'll 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 start uh, with something I said in my presentation. I think it also needs to come from the everyday people, and I think it could come from there. And it's something we need to support all these groups that are working sectarianly. Uh, is something we need to support even more, whether it's in, in Beirut or Iraq and elsewhere, and not support these entrenched sectarian uh, parties that we do today.
4: Well, I would say, you know, if I want to be revolutionary, just to get rid of the state and just have societies running themselves. So I'm very anarchist in that, in that sense. <laughs> but, but if I'm realist, I would say you need to develop a functional uh, uh, citizenship by which you can have a functional state. I mean, Saudi, well, not Saudi, let's call it another <laughs> Well, you can, you can call, uh, for instance, uh, Kuwait being a relatively functional state, right? I mean, institutional-wise. But they are, they are, they are far away from developing inclusive citizenship, mean membership in the state. So I think that's the crucial thing. Even though if you have a functional state, what does it matter if you don't have the inclusion in the state? So we have a Swedish state, which is very well functioning, what happens if our fragile system crumbles under the identity politics that we are seeing developing every day.
1: Thank you to to the panel for for helping us to dig into these important and difficult issues. And thank you to the audience for coming. And I think we leave the room with with many new thoughts, each one
0: of us. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UISweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.